0: And we are back. Thank you guys for joining us. This is kind of a special edition of Know Your Risk Radio. And the reason that that we're doing this is obviously the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is is a big deal. Uh, And I think all too often, you know, for those of us that have been around for a while, you hear uh, of another spark in, in that quote-unquote kind of saga, right, that ongoing conflict. And I think that maybe all too often we're tempted to just shove it aside as another one in a series of things that we've seen so many of. And um, I also think that there is, obviously, if we look at statements on social media, um, outright meet, you know statements that people have made to the media, um, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about this conflict. I think there's a lot of um, ridiculous takes on the topic. And as always, one of the things we seek to do here on Know Your Risk Radio is break down complex topics and arm people with the facts and a better understanding of that. And so in thinking about who I wanted to do this with, um, a name came up, and it's a guy I've had on here multiple times, Dimitri Kafinas, the proprietor of Hidden Forces, um, an amazing podcast, and it's actually one of the only ones I listen to. Now and um, he did a recent interview with um, Demetri. So first of all, let me let me back. Welcome to the show, man. Great to have you back, and I'm really glad you pre- you agreed to come on with me on, on with us today. Thanks for having me on. Now, what was the name of the gentleman that you had? On I've got my notes. here Kamran oh, Bahari. Yes, Bahari. Now, give us a little bit. Um, I was so impressed by his knowledge in this interview, and there and there's two parts to it. I am a paying subscriber to Hidden Forces, so I get the 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 after hour segment is what they call. But one of the reasons I want to have you want to talk about this is I was just so impressed by the breadth of knowledge he had and the workmanlike attitude he has toward it. Right. He was, he was remarkably unemotional about it. You could tell that he Mm. is hip deep in this conflict and understanding, you know, all the different aspects and different sides, but tell us a little bit how you ran into him and um, what prompted you to want to have him on your show. Cause I know you've got a pretty good filter for, You're know, you not just going to have somebody on social media on your show to discuss this issue. So so why him?
1: Yeah, no, I actually agonized with um, trying to get a guest to come on the podcast because I wanted to make sure that if we were to do an episode on this, first of all, I felt like we had to do an episode on this because we do such great geopolitical coverage. And if we just didn't, if we were absent on this issue, I felt like that would have been off brand. But at the same time, I wanted to see what we could add in terms of what we could do that would add value to the conversation in an in an environment where so many people were talking about this. So I was um, one of the areas that I was interested in trying to grapple with is any potential role that the Iranians played in this and pathways of further escalation, either with Iran or other other parties in the region, or specifically Iranian proxies in Syria or Lebanon. And then also how that would result in the United States getting involved, and then also ways of deescalating. So he was someone I'd heard on another podcast, uh, I think months ago, and he, and I put him in my database of guests that I, you know, you, I could potentially have if I wanted to talk about Iran, because there's so many things I want to talk about all the time. I get pitched so many different guests, either from publicists or listeners. And so there are more interesting people to speak to than I have time to speak to. And so I, I went back to, to my list and I pulled his name out of the hat. And I reached out to him, and actually he, I DM'd him, and I, n- I never heard back. And then Sunday night, I'm sitting around. I don't have an episode. You know, it's like six thirty p.m. I think I told you I texted Joe. I was like, I, I believe this yeah. or not? I spent the whole week trying to, you know, make this happen. It didn't happen. And then I, I had this idea to check his LinkedIn, and I found his email, and I emailed him, and uh, he came on the next morning. Um, so wow. sorry, it was uh, Saturday night. So he came on the next morning, Sunday, Sunday morning. We did it. and We turned it around for Monday and uh so that's how that whole thing came together
0: yeah so and 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 his his back so phd senior director of the eurasian uh security and prosperity portfolio which he described as somewhat of a think tank right but a think tank that does not want, it's not for the purpose of dictating policy, right? Like a lot of these think tanks are going to use mm-hmm. their influence and try to, they're usually sponsored by special interests of some type like that. From my understanding, listening to him to talk about it, they want to stay away from that. They just want to right? more mm-hmm. like analysts and, and offering up their opinions as opposed to, or, or their analysis as opposed to trying to um, lobby, if you will, which I think I don't really understand the think tank world really well. I was kind of surprised to hear him are all these think tanks like that are these kind of, are most of them kind of just another form of a lobby is that is that kind of the business model
1: You know that's a great question I'm not sure I'm not sure how the think tanks tanks operate I, I assume they get a lot of money in terms of donations but what are the strings attached to those donations a lot of these are, are partisan like for example the Brookings Institute leans left the Hoover Institute leans leans right um and so uh, what, I, what it's interesting about this guy and other people like them so wh- well, i was actually thinking about this um there's a guy named george Friedman who founded stratford which was a private um geopolitical consultancy company and that company has produced so many independent av- analysts it was like, it's like um it's like a hornet's nest everyone's left from there um this guy left from there. Marco Papich was there. Jacob Shapiro, who works with Roger Hurst over at yeah. is was there. Um, Peter Zihan was there. So there, there's, I think, what's happened, if you want to the truth, and this is something that I feel like, I don't know if it's worth a bo- someone writing a book about Stratford, but it, it might be interesting. I don't know enough to know if it's interesting. But as someone who studied foreign policy in college in the early 2000s, and who was consumed by... Uh, issues of foreign affairs, specifically 9 11, the war on terror, the Iraq war. That was a period of time where the foreign policy analyst was the rock star on cable two, cable news. That paradigm changed after the 2008 financial crisis, and the rock star became the financial person, the person that could explain markets, et cetera. And I feel like what's ha- what happened in those intervening years after you know after the 2008 crisis is that a lot of those guys who were in the nonprofit or public service space began to transition out into the private sector doing private consultancy a great example is ian bremer i used to follow ian bremer's work back when he was um at the uh at the nixon institute or the nixon the nixon library not the nixon library the nixon institute or the nixon center i can't remember the name of it i used to watch him on cspan he used to write for the national interest Yep. Back when he was out of out of his PhD, he had written some books at the time. He Wrote a book called J Curve, which was about totalitarian regimes, and he was he's someone who really nailed that model, and he's made an enormous, anno- huge business. You know, I have no idea how much money they make, but they make a fortune doing this kind of private consultancy for Fortune 500 companies. But there's a there are a lot of avenues to do this, and what you're seeing now is more and more analysts filling the crevices out to the point where you've got guys now that are doing kind of newsletter type services, charging top dollar for analysis, because in a multipolar world, in a world that's transitioning from unipolarity to multipolarity, many of the bedrock assumptions that people, including investors, have had about geostrategic security are being upended. And so trying to understand, the opportunity to understand that is hugely relevant for people and they're willing to pay. So that's what you're seeing now. And in the context of that, there's a there are a lot of people that are that are very good, let's say garnering eyeballs, but they're not necessarily great analysts. The same kind of thing you see in finance. You and I know this. We talk about this all yeah. the time, right? It's one thing to tell a great story, it's another thing to actually be a really good investor. Same thing is true here. So, you know, I, I try to bring on guys, I don't always get it right, but uh, I try to bring on people that I think are really smart and good in their analysis. He's one of them. And this is something else just to cap this off. You and I've talked about this before I don't want to necessarily open up another avenue of conversation, but it, what matters to me is I, I judge people not based on what they say, but how they say it, not based on what they think, but how they think, what is the right. process that they bring to the table? And I would agree with you that he had a really good process.
0: Yeah. Avoiding, and you and I have spent a lot of time talking about this, but avoiding the echo chamber, right? Um, you, know, you look at modern social media, and that's really all it's turned into, right? It's just I, I'm gonna I'm gonna follow a bunch of people that are just gonna reconfirm all of the things that I already think, and kind of kind of hard to get it right when you're when you're looking at things that way. So, go ahead.
1: No, I was gonna say also another thing is that you know very few people, and this is something I've only I've recently discovered when I was trying to understand you know what is it that makes certain people prone to a particular way of thinking that feels unstructured or poor or not not properly epistemic. And I think that what I've learned is that a lot of people most people don't have an underlying theory to explain their opinion. And that's why if you dig deep enough you f- you begin to find inconsistencies in what they say because there's no underlying underlying theory. They don't know why they think what they think. So one of the ways that I try to, you know, figure out if someone's worth listening to is I try to understand if they can explain to me why they believe what they believe in a way that's consistent across various questions. And I can quickly figure that out now. And that's kind of how I assess people, you know, before I bring them on the show.
0: Yeah. So let's, let's get into this. Let's get into this topic, right? Kind of from the jump. Um, And we could, and I was thinking about how I wanted to start this because obviously Contrary to some of the people in the media or, or on per, on social media or whatever the case may be, um, the, this is a conflict that's been going on for a very long time, right? uh, predating everybody that's currently alive on the earth by thousands of years. Um, depending
1: on when you start, sure.
0: Yeah, depending on when you start. So let, let's – Rather than getting into a biblically historical type, you know, back and forth and trying to look at it through that lens. I just think it's really helpful to pull it up to, you know, the last 70 years and kind of look at the generate, mm. the, you know, the, <clears throat> the way things have played out and what's led us to this point today. What And, 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 and the, one of the things that I wanted to point to, and I know that he talked about this and I'm, I've got it in my notes here somewhere. Uh, but. About Israel, you know, at the center of this, when you hear a lot of the repugnant and completely just obscene comments, in my opinion, on this conflict, at the center of them, well, you know what? Actually, let me digress a second. You said something when you and I were talking about this same issue. Personally, you you said something that I think is very um, poignant and I think is, you know, really hitting the nail right on the head. And I don't want people out there to take this the wrong way. So hear me and hear the context. But you made a comment that I found was really enlightening, and I agreed with, which was morality does not does not belong in this conversation. Right? Mm. Why don't you explain a little bit? Uh, by that, you're not saying that there isn't right or wrong, but mm. why don't Good you? Good
1: luck finding that? it in this conflict, Zach.
0: Right. 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 So explain to the folks what you mean a little bit by that
1: comment. Well, for, yeah, so I mean there's a lot of nuance here. One, I think moral what I I think I maybe I said to you was that moral arguments are mm. largely irrelevant in international affairs. They they are relevant. And in fact, the Israelis have tested the Israelis are are the, like the prime example of a country that has tested the boundaries of power, of what power can achieve. The Israelis are far more powerful than, than the Palestinians, but even with all of that power, they haven't been able to establish a secure, um, a secure state. Um, so, so there are limitations to power, but moral arguments are only relevant insofar as they are coupled with an underlying uh, power. Like You have to be able to credibly use force to establish what it is that you want to accomplish, and the problem for the Palestinians is not only that they've been they haven't been powerful and haven't really been able to, you know, um bring themselves bring themselves to the negotiation table in, in a in a manner that's remotely equivalent to what the Israelis have, who have built this formidable economy, who have um developed a uniquely strong relationship between the single most important ally you could have in the world, which is the United States and who have developed a highly militarized society that can mobilize hundreds of thousands of troops in no time, Iron Dome, you know all about this. So not only is that a huge asymmetry, but also the Palestinians are so internally divided that there's never been someone that can properly represent them in a manner that can ha, provides the Israelis with a sense of confidence that they can live side by side you know, with, uh, with a Palestinian state that can manage its own internal security, something very important. And you know, People are going to take argument with this, and I'm also not an expert on, on um, the history of, of, of Israel-Palestine to the, to, enough to really talk about this. But just on a very high level, I think that when you're dealing with a conflict where both sides – so first of all, absolutely the Palestinians on a historical basis have every right to feel aggrieved about the partitioning of their land after 1948. The problem is no one alive today is responsible for that decision. And lots of the the people living in Israel today didn't didn't make that decision. Also, the people of Israel themselves are also divided on this question of a Palestinian state, and you know there there are different viewpoints. But my point is that it's not so simple. Like I've heard, you know, there was a commentator actually. This was a view that was circling around quite a bit, which is an analogy that people use, which is that the, the the Israel Palestinian conflict is a situation where the Palestinians are basically living in a house. The Israelis are the people that come in, break into the house, put the family in the basement, and then the family breaks free at some point, kills two two people that two of the people that sort of invaded, and then they get blamed for it and I just think that that's not accurate mm-hmm. because again, like the people that broke into the house, if we want to go with this analogy, are not alive anymore right so like right. I just think there there's a lack, and I get it because it's so. It's so hard to deal with this fact—the fact that everyone's a victim in a sense, and everyone's a perpetrator in a sense. I mean, there are various degrees of a victim-perpetrator on both sides of this. Clearly, Hamas is the worst of the worst form of evil on the Palestinian side. Um, and so, I—I—I I, I, I has, for example, there are settlers that there have been reports of, of, uh, of sorry, of, um, yeah, of Israelis who have moved into the West Bank after this event happened in Gaza and shot people, shot Palestinians. And over the course of the entire conflict, the last however many decades, it's the Israelis that have killed more Palestinians, but good luck trying to sort all that out. So my point was that when it comes down to it, the moral arguments are irrelevant. What really matters is power and and there are limitations to power. So the power needs to be coupled with, with diplomacy. And the problem for the Israel-Palestine issue is that there's no good solution. So we think about Other situ other sort of issues in America. This is very common, where there are really good theoretical solutions. We all know what they are, but the politics are intractable, right? The problem for Israel Palestine, and there's no good theoretical solution. Forget politics. I just gave you one example. Like the Israelis don't know can they take, can they take their their foot off the neck of the Palestinians? If so, what happens then to them? You know, are they going to be safe? And I think I feel like that's also lost when you have an attack on the I mean the, the, the Israelis are attacked, sure there's an asymmetric power dynamic, but the Israelis are still scared. I mean that was a terrifying thing that happened and people have already forgotten about it because now what we're seeing is understandably all the imagery of all the dead Palestinians who are by number are racking up much faster because the Israelis can just, you know, bomb the hell out of Gaza. So I just feel like it's just one of those things where I don't even bother getting into the moral argument because I feel like both sides have a moral claim and it's so muddied um, and there's so much existential angst on both sides of this that um, it, it's just it's just a situation where if you're not in the conflict itself, I feel like you even have less of a le- leg to stand on when it comes I, to moral arguments.
0: I would agree. And, and I it's you can see them on both sides. And naturally, when you look at the radio stations that we're on, we have a we have a, a an audience that is much more to the conservative side of things. So obviously with that, typically you're going to have a more pro-Israel stance on it. Um, my last name is Abraham. I'm, I am come from a long line of Lebanese Jews from way back when. So there's bias certainly in, in my analysis. Um, but when you look at it, let, let's even get into the term occupation, right? Like, um, you know, this isn't a scenario like us coming to North America and – pushing, you know, they, they, that that is clearly a, a scenario where, <clears throat> you know, manifest destiny, you can make all the different arguments for it. But at the end of the day, what we did to Native Americans here and the indigenous people here in the United States is a travesty, right? Um, I don't think anybody looking back on that did did wonderful benefits and things come out of it for our country. Sure. But it was, there, there was a cost, right? And and the Native Americans <laughs> bore the brunt of that cost. Um, when, when, when people start getting... If if you are, at least from my perspective, and then based on your conversation uh that you had on on this topic recently in, in the interview, um, I want to hear your thoughts. But um even when we talk about occupation, it seems like a fruitless avenue to go down because it really depends on when you're talking about it, right? Like, well, Israel's the occupier, and you're like, Well, yeah, 1949, but you know, I, I look at both groups having original claims on this land going way back when, right? So it's it's much more complicated than saying, you know, the United States landed North America, took over the indigenous people. That's pretty clear cut, right? I don't really feel like looking back through history, unless you're looking at this through the lens of religion, right? Like if you're a Muslim, you're obviously going to see it one way. If you're a Jew, you're going to see it another way. But I mean, aren't we looking at two people that basically came from the same area and, and historically speaking, both have claims to the land, right? Uh,
1: well, that's part of the problem though, right? Because you're saying – this goes back to kind of my point. There's, this, there's a certain sense of historical lineage claims, but the people that – at the time that Israel-Palestine was partitioned – and again, I'm very shaky ground here, right? You know, They say when you're skating on thin ice, you want to kind of move quickly. Yeah. Um, I uh, you know, I, th- I think the population was 10% Jews or 7% Jews and the rest were Palestinians. Yeah. And yet the the the, pro, the land by the UN at the time was partitioned 55% to Jews and 45% to Palestinians. But I think again this goes even in the case of native americans and the spanish or the or the english this is the history of humanity. Right. One group tries to conquer another group. I think what's also lost on a lot of people is that The conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians, while uniquely vicious and violent, is actually a common issue across all of the former Ottoman territories, and and also just a general fact, a general um, dynamic that emerged from the rise of nationalism, Woodrow Wilson's League of Nations, the idea that that independent that nations of people would get their own states right like the world was 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 organized along empires for for the longest period of time and in the ottoman empire jews christians and muslims lived together yes muslims were sort of higher in the hierarchy but look greece is a similar example greece got its own state even though greeks had a historical claim to the land of greece the people alive in the 1800s who revolt who rebelled um, in cahoots with Western powers to try to overthrow Ottoman rule in in the Mediterranean, those people didn't have claims to Athens from 500 BC. We're not even probably anywhere near the same genetic makeup. I'm Greek, so there's a I, I, and so you know like if the Ottomans today, if the, if the Turks today, and this is a real issue I've written I've talked about it in, in the on the show if they were to, to decide to take pieces of of the eastern mediterranean rocks in the aegean or islands in the aegean with people on them do they have d- does greece have a moral right to that property as, as opposed to the turks and i think that just becomes a really messy argument and i think moral arguments i think we're also used to making moral arguments in interna- international affairs because in particular because we've lived through 30 years of multiple, of unipolarity. 30 years of a rules-based international order where the United States set the rules of the road, where there was a United Nations that governed international law, and where there was a real sense that you could not push the boundaries. You couldn't forcibly change international boundaries. And remember the precedent set by Saddam Hussein in 1991 with his invasion of Kuwait. The Bush administration with their response setting, what was it, 500,000 troops Into Iraq, eviscerating that country, Um, that was an important moment for the that the the initiation of the rules based international order, and that's breaking down. We've seen that in Ukraine, we see that in Aborno Karabakh, we see that here with Israel Palestine, and there will be other places where it will be challenged. and And Greece, Turkey is potentially one of those places. So to bring it back to that example, because I am Greek, it concerns me, and I think that the Greeks need to do what they can facing an uphill on demographics. Facing an e- economic differences between the Turks, and uh, each nation must do what it can. It has to decide what cost it's willing to bear for the right of self determination at the limit, and less consequentially for the right to maintain all of their territory.
0: Yeah, <clears throat> no, I I agree with all that. I getting back to specifically the Israeli Palestinian uh, uh, conflict. How, how do we or or <clears throat> We, how do you, how do I, but, but just how, how do you um, not, not rationalize it? How do you wrap your head around the dynamic of the, the, I think one of the things that makes this topic muddy is that you have true believers on both sides of the, of the argument, right? right. That, are, that, that are locked in blood feud dynamics. Mm. And then you have people on both sides of the debate that are in it for personal gain right? That are in it for increased power and control. That's another thing that's really tough, right? We, we, we were on, and again, I'm going to skate thinly on, or I'm going to skate quickly on this thin ice as well, (laughs) but I'm reminded of the, of the peace talks. And I believe it was, um, it was between, uh, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't it Ariel Sharon and Yasser Arafat that Clinton brought to the table?
1: Barack. um,
0: uh, Ehud Barack.
1: Yeah. Barack and and, uh, Arafat.
0: Yes. Um, You know, They they at that point, um, if I'm not mistaken, historically, the Israelis were prepared to give quite a few consul right. They were they were prepared to give expensively right. They were going to give meaningfully to that, and they were also going to recognize a Palestinian state. And Arafat pulled out essentially at the last second, left him sitting there at the table. Right.
1: You know, it's been a long time since I I, I remember the issue. One of the issues for Arafat was he wanted what he called kissing points. He wanted, to, he wanted to, to connect Gaza and the West Bank. And uh, I think also there were probably levels of autonomy that the Palestinians wanted that the Israelis were not prepared to give, at least not initially, I assume, because they wanted to gradually, let's say, take their foot off the neck of the Palestinians, because I use that example, because they were legitimately concerned about what would happen if they just got up and gave them guns, right?
0: Right. Right. Well, so, but my point is, is then, and again, I, I'm i not saying this in a way to put all the blame or all the, all the ownership or, or, you know, at the Palestinians feet, but then Arafat passes away and we find out why it was worth something like seven or 800 million bucks. No,
1: these guys months. are all so corrupt.
0: Right. And, and that's the other part of it, right? Arafat did, wasn't getting paid to end the conflict, right? Arafat was getting paid to continue it because he's effectively fighting a proxy war for other Arab countries that have got an axe to grind against Israel, correct?
1: Um, Arafat, you're saying?
0: Yeah, well, yeah. Obviously, he's gone, but I'm using that as an example, right? I like-
1: think, yeah. My, I, I don't. Again, I don't know. This is now. This is now where I'm not prepared. Of course, I, I, my working assumption is these guys are all very corrupt. Yeah. Right. But uh, you know, I don't. I don't know enough about the the politics of the PLO or FATA, or the the history of all this stuff. Of course I've heard from all the experts that they're very corrupt. And I just feel like it, it the the further down the stack you go the more corrupt governments and, and organizations become. Right? Real and large, right? and I think also, you know, again, I think also another thing that's that I feel like this also annoys the hell out of me when I listen to people talk and they throw around words like corruption and this and that. I feel like people really aren't realistic. When they think about the fact that there are a gazillion power brokers in the world, and if you want political political power you've got to negotiate between all of those people mm-hmm. you know like it's not like when you know let's say Barack Obama came to power in two thousand and eight two thousand and nine maybe maybe in his heart of hearts he wanted to to institute bigger reforms on the banking system, but he ended up having to you know um, Make concessions to the to the banks, who know i I'm just using that example. My point is that like there are a lot of power brokers, and even if your intentions are in the right place, I'm not saying they were they were in this case. I'm just making a point that you you have to negotiate between power brokers, and so like out of that I think comes a lot of corruption just by virtue of that fact you know
0: well, and the identification or the recognition of corruption does not moot any argument coming from that side of it because it's like like you said i mean. If corruption is really what makes you turn up your nose, don't go to Washington D.C. Right? Don't get in, like- and
1: don't get involved in anything that has to do with like solutions in the real world.
0: Right? Because like right.
1: you're just not you're just not playing. You know, I remember I was in a foreign, my foreign policy class. My I've brought this guy up many times. Um, you know, maybe my memory of him, I've, I've exaggerated how great of a teacher he was because it was my first foreign policy class in college. But he still was great, and maybe I'm not exaggerating. Maybe he was really great. But his name was David Denoon, and I believe that he was an Assistant Secretary of Defense at the Reagan administration. He worked for the Defense Department, and I remember early on he was very conservative, and he was one of those guys that would get canceled today, you know, Um, like right straight out of the gate. And I remember he sort of put together a thought experiment, and he was very sort of condescending to those who didn't agree with him. And his thought experiment was like. If there's a f- plane flying to Wash over Washington D.C. and it's going to be there in like 30 minutes, and like you know that it has you know it has a certain substance on board, and when it goes over D.C., it's going to release and it's going like to kill a million people. But there are like 200 people on the plane. Like, do you shoot the plane down? And like, if you don't shoot the plane down, you're ridiculous. Like, you have no place in politics whatsoever. And there were people in the class who were like, "That's morally wrong." and i i as i've gotten older I, it's just become more obvious to me how ridiculous that that are you know to say that it's you, you can say whatever you want but you have no business when it comes to power because you have to make real decisions in the real world and so i think that i mean that's sort of my view on that you know
0: well it gets into another conversation you've had and we've had it on the show many times you know regardless of who's on which is there seem and maybe it's something that's always existed right i think that it's more of a recent thing because that's when I came of age and that's when I noticed it. Right. Um, you know, but this whole idea that there are cost-free solutions, Hmm. right. And I, I hear it so much in politics today. And like I said, maybe it's something that's always existed, but you get these people running around going, this is what we should do. And you go, well, hold on a second. That comes with its whole other you know list of problems. There is no cost-free solution. And, um, you know, I think it, I immediately intellectually dismiss people when it's like, no, no, this is the way we got to do things. And this is how we resolve. It's just it's it's just it's yeah. childish.
1: It's childish. Yeah, it's what it children really
0: do. Is. I refer to it as third grade diplomacy. Yeah, right? that's it, people, what it is. Right. If we ask, a, ask a group of third graders how they would handle something. And those are the kind of answers you get. Um, another interesting part of this conflict, and it was one that I sort of felt a little embarrassed by my lack of ignorance on this particular aspect of it was Um, the two H's where it was fascinating to listen to your guest really delineate between Hamas and Hezbollah. Mm. And like I said, it was a little embarrassing because I sat there and I thought, you know, I've never spent any time really thinking about the differences between those groups, what their aims are, whether they are, you know, even to the point of not even knowing if they are cooperative, right? Do they work hand in hand? How do they, Walk us through a little bit of that Hamas and Hezbollah and the origins of both, as you understand it. Obviously, you're very not
1: thin, very thin ice. Look, very thin ice. Yeah, I don't, I don't know enough. I would say this is where I would really direct people to my conversation with uh, Kamran, because he 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 began to touch on it just a bit. Yeah. Um, but the, I think the la- the larger sort of the, the 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 important takeaway about these organizations is that both of them. Have strong ties to the Iranian, um, the the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, Quds Force, and are part of this network of Islamic revolution that that Iran and the IRGC have been trying to spread as part of their, as part of their way of um, exerting power and influence and getting a seat at the negotiating table. In 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 the attempt to influence the political trajectory of the Middle East, right, and where this is relevant, it feeds back into what was the important international political dynamic that was happening leading up to the terrorist attacks that happened last weekend. The Saudis and the Israelis were on the verge of a historic diplomatic deal as part of the larger Abraham Accords that had already led to breakthrough agreements between the Israelis and other members of of, of other Arab states. So the, the the Iranians are vying for influence and power, and that would have represented a major threat to them. And by the way, this is the thing, again, the graveyard of empires, they call the Middle East, or Afghanistan, they call Afghanistan the graveyard of empires. But in some sense, again, what we see in Middle East politics is the, out, is the outcome of the death of empires. You have these various sects. What happened in Iraq? We invaded a country that was an artificial nation-state, Held together by a strong man who we bolstered in our in, in the war against Iran. We felt we fueled, we've um, funded both sides of that conflict because we didn't want to see any one of those major powers dominate the region. We then invaded Iraq and it broke up into sectarian warfare because these countries inside they're like hornets' nests. They're not civil, they're not stable civil societies, which brings us back to the Palestinian case. Even Palestine is divided. And that's the other thing the the Pal- Palestinian the, the division within Palestinian politics was another prelude to the to the negotiations between Israel and Saudi Arabia you know can we can we can we salt, can we come to dip, some to diplomatic agreement and also try to address st- figure some kind of solution out for the Palestinian case which is definitely not going to be as good as what they would have gotten under the Oslo accords but let's figure something out because Mahmoud Abbas the leader of Fatah and the PLO is 87 years old he's going to die at some point and Hamas wants to take take you know ownership of the lord be the larger representative party organization for the palestinians so even within palestine this small territorial area of a of a really like defeated oppressed you know sort of occupied people if you want to use that framing, they're completely politically divided. They can't rule over themselves. What a mess. This is a it's a complete mess, by the way, which is why this has been such a disaster to try and play power politics, broker, etc. in the Middle East, not just for the United States, for the Brits. Yeah. You know, and it's 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 become worse since our invasion of Iraq. And I'm actually reading an interesting book now. Um, I think the book's called Confronting Saddam. And it's written by a scholar who did the best he could to get as much uh, get as many of the documents from the Bush administration as possible. I believe he was only able to get so many because of you know freedom of information requests, but he was able to get a lot from the UK because they, there was a lot of information there that they made public after the invasion of Iraq. They went through much, a much deeper sort of reckoning process apparently, but he also sat down and interviewed everybody, Wolfowitz, Libby, Douglas Fythe, um, You know everybody and i'm reading this cuz it's 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 fascinating and i i've i have talked about iraq cuz i'm reading the book cuz i actually want to dedicate a show to it because i talk about iraq all the time and how consequential it was i really point to iraq as if america really is on a long term decline you can you can put it directly on the shoulders of george w bush but also i think it's important to try and reckon honestly with the the pro the the sort of the challenges that the Bush administration was confronting at that time when they decided to invade Iraq. Um, and i don't know i don't know how straightforward it was because at the time I was against the war again, I had David Dannoon who was against the war and educated us on why you didn't want to invade a country that had Shiites Sunnis and Kurds um, and you didn't want to break up a country that was sixty percent Shiite, I believe it was next to your neighbor Iran, which is by the way why h w Bush didn't go to Baghdad. After they defeated Iraq, because they didn't know what the hell they were going to do with it, yeah so yeah. you know it's just one of those things where they found themselves in a difficult situation. Saddam was really ruthless. I mean, the stories of Saddam are, inc- are just incredible. I mean, he was the most yeah. ruthless dictator you've ever seen, and he was hell-bent on, on, on getting weapons of mass destruction, hell-bent on changing borders in the region. And so um, what, what seems to have happened with the Middle East over time? And I'll end talking now, but I just, because I think it's relevant to this Israeli Palestinian conflict. I feel like what's happened is the great powers, or in this case, Israel, have been confronted with, let's take Israel a second. Great powers, they've been confronted with a really difficult, bad situation that they don't like. And they try to tinker around the edges, try to adjust, just adjust. I mean, Iraq was more than an adjustment. <laughs> but everything they do, they make it worse. And they just get sucked in and sucked in, which is why Biden wanted to pull out of Afghanistan. Because they all know that the region is a morass, and look what's happening now, we're getting sucked back in. We might get sucked back into the Middle East because of Iranian involvement in the attacks with Hamas, and then good luck on the pivot to Asia, because now we've got an open front with Ukraine, Russia, which is already straining the US industrial base and our productive capacity to produce defensive weaponry, artillery, et cetera and the and the and the same weapons by the way that some of the same weapons that taiwanese would need and that we would be shipping taiwan right now to help port to, to help bolster them in a defense against china and now we have an op you have a potential open front disastrous war in in uh in Israel where you have the same need for the support of the defense industrial base so it is really it's the it's the international rules based liberal order coming and unipolarity coming apart.
0: Yeah. And it's, and it's happening with breakneck pace. Uh, Another thing that Cameron talked about that I was, I found fascinating. It was also something that I was, I figured too, but again, that's just my deductive reasoning and, and, you know, coming from a place of where I'm nowhere nearly as educated to see is on the topic. But he seemed, and and if I get this wrong, pl- feel free to correct me. But he seemed to almost um, laugh, if you will, at the idea that Iran was not involved in some capacity. Yeah, in this, right. Where where the popular line has been, you know, Wall Street Journal came out and said they were, and then there were several different politicians that walked it back and said we don't know. He he kind of he, he kind of scoffed at that whole idea, right, saying that no, no, they they're absolutely behind this. What, Walk me through again. You're the one. Sure. Who did the yeah, yeah. Walk, walk so
1: first North. of all, I just want to remind people. Remember when Nord Stream was bombed? Yeah. If I rem- if I recall, unless I'm mistaken, neither side blamed the other. Right. Right. So I think the, the 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 reality is also there's a level there's a there's a there's a situation in which even if both sides know that Iran's involved, it may not be something that they want to acknowledge because if they acknowledge it now, they have to act on it. Now they have to do something.
0: Right. Right. So, uh,
1: you know, I, I, think, I think, look, it's hard to believe that they weren't. And by the way, the leader of the Quds force met with the leader of Hamas only a few days afterwards in Qatar. Okay? So, like, they were hugging and kissing, you know, three kisses in Iranian style and hugging and laughing. And there was a video released of this. I mean, that's a big F you. Yeah, you know, if like, so I get that the the ayatollah said that there was no involvement, but maybe the ayatollah didn't even know. Yeah, you know, yeah. and again, this speaks to the the complexity of Iranian politics and power structure, and how much power the IRGC has versus the the clergy versus the the presidency. You know, so my my sense is that yeah, they probably knew, and you know, I think um, Kamran made a good point, which is that you have a huge leap in terms of competency from what hamas traditionally does what their mo is to what they standard. did right. right so i feel like you know i think this is where you get into a, a thing of like well what do you know and what can you prove you know and we've learned we've all learned from all these netflix shows that cops can misle- you know can lead the the the, the person who's in police custody and get them to confess but there's also truth to the fact that People that are in this business for a long time, and Cameron strikes me as a guy that his background seems to me deeper than what his resume his official resume says. yeah, you know, he seems to have a really mm. tangible, intuitive sense of intelligence and i think I just think that you know people that have been in this business long enough understand the different dynamics, the relationships, and you know his argument makes sense to me,
0: yeah. Oh, one hundred percent. Which is one of the reasons I want to have you on to talk about. Yeah,
1: it. but the larger thing, the thing is, dude. Here's the thing. Let's go back to the is- Israel Palestine. So, without getting into a moral argument, just talking straight up here. Let's just say you're Israel. You're surrounded by threat. I'm not gonna. Let's not get into a moral argument about why you in are in that situation. You know the the decisions that led to this. What you inherit. You inherited the situation. You're in this security environment. Okay, and you care about your people, you care about your nation, you have a sense of, uh, of patriotism and nationality, what do you do? You have Hezbollah to the north, you have, you have Iranian proxies in Syria, you have Hamas, which just literally went over the border and killed so many of your citizens in cold blood that you were still discovering settlements that had been, where the people had been massacred after you thought you figured out What had happened, and you discover more dead bodies. I mean, you're talking about a very, and the the hostage situation, in terms of that, to me, was the most traumatic thing, I imagine, to have to find out that over 100, I think it was 150 people, maybe 250 at this point. I think the final, I don't know what the final numbers were. In fact, there were so many hostages taken that it actually was counterproductive for Hamas because it, it actually was difficult to form a narrative around the hostages. If you have six hostages, you can tell a story. They took so many people, you know. I, and for me, I'll tell you, when I saw the nothing, of course, there was the image of that girl on the on the motorcycle being taken away, physically, physically taken away from her boyfriend, you know, like physically taken from the man that's there to protect her, yeah. taken away on a motorcycle of some, some evil, just, uh, just um, terror terrorist. You know, God knows what that person was. But to me, the one that was the most um, heartbreaking of all was the grandmother seeing that grandmother on that did you see that that image of that grandmother
0: where they put in 84
1: yeah that and she was quiet she yeah. was calm and i just thought that woman has seen things that woman has lived things and she is just inside i'm sure she's very scared um and there's and who is there to save her the, there was something about that that they took your people right mm-hmm. so um i think that we have to be empathetic to both sides in this case the 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 level of stress and fear that they're all under is, and that's the part of the scary thing. It's it could lead to a lot of mistakes, and that's the concern because these this is exactly what presumably the Iranians would want. They would want the Israelis to go in hardcore to Gaza. Uh, it, it would it would cause much more support to come onto the Palestinian side, and by de facto increase Iranian power. And Kamran made a point that ultimately the Iranians don't want to go to war with the Americans. What they want to do is they want to apply enough pressure so they can use this opportunity to negotiate for things that they want, maybe sanctions relief, but they're, that they're playing the long game. But, that, but the question is, are they prepared to go to war? And it sounds like they are because they're putting open threats. So what happens? You know, what, 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 are the, what are the next steps? Do they unleash Hezbollah and they start raining rockets on Israel that break through the Iron Dome? And then what does Israel do? What does the United States do? Do we start sending cruise missiles to Iran? And what are the targets in Iran? And do we start hitting Iranian oil oil infrastructure, which for your audience is relevant. You know, do we yeah. So, I mean, and that has a direct impact on the Chinese because the Chinese are a huge customer of Iranian oil. So, you see how the complexity of this whole thing happens as much as 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 much as we're seeing military stuff on the ground, the real the real alpha right now is on the diplomatic channels.
0: Yeah, well, and 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 just so people really understand, because I think it's so easy again to look at this through a right wrong moral lens. It, either you told me this or I heard it in the interview. I can't remember, what, but something like what, what is it? I, I, I want to say it's either forty to forty-five percent of Palestinians don't support Hamas.
1: I, you know, like I, I didn't tell you that. I don't know what I don't know. Uh, and for me, when it comes to that kind of stuff, I'd have to, you know, I'd have Did, to see the polls. I'd have to see kind of yeah. what, uh, we, but yeah.
0: I don't want to quote a number. Then they,
1: but- Hamas was, was elected in two thousand and six, right? But they haven't held held elections since, right? So, and the thing is also more than half of all Palestinians are under the age of eighteen. Jeez. So who? Jeez. What? What? They're not even. They're not even by our standards eligible to vote. Right.
0: Well, and then and then, and this is where this is another illustration to me of the complexity of the whole situation, right? Which is. Before your answer is just going there and bulldoze everything, you remember there's a bunch of people in there that weren't in children, brother, of these
1: children, past. man, children, and
0: children, right? That don't children. want any part of this. So it's not you're just not killing bad guys with masks on, mm-hmm. right? And and then when you do that, we here comes another generation, right? It's the blood feud dynamics of just going round and round and round we go, and yet at the same time, the the complex part about it too is what do you tell Israel? right if we're in israel's shoes what is the what are the actions that we take um and and uh, you know we're not going to be able to answer those questions now but <clears throat> another one that was interesting to me because i think again the easy way to look at these things is well of course iran is funding all of these terrorists because they hate jews right um after listening to Cameron, and 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 i always figured you know i always saw it as being a little more complex than that but i will also admit that i was kind of catching you know looking at through that lens as well.
1: I think also Jews are a very convenient boogeyman for the Iranian regime, right? They're a great sure. scapegoat to offload domestic discontent, focus. And that's an increasingly important thing for the Iranian regime because of how what a disaster the 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 politics have been internally and the economic situation has been. It's it's a, it's convenient for them to focus outside. And this is a common sure. thing, it's not just the Iranians that do that, yeah.
0: Yeah. But but they but then i realized that there is more that they have to gain what are our for, for from your discussion with cameron and then also you're just you know again it might be thin ice for you as well but i know you spend a lot more time thinking about these kinds of things where i'm you know usually much more looking at things through the lens of finance what are the things outside of just naked Genocidal ambition or naked anti-Semitism that would motivate Iran?
1: Yeah, I think the 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 the, the most obvious rational objective is sanctions relief. The most yeah. rational objective is to increase the amount of money that they're able to generate internally, so they can reconstitute their economy and eventually also reconstitute their nuclear program. Yeah, which is also very scary. Again, like look at the this. this I feel like if you want to talk about a powder keg, where like you have enough. Intersecting arrows to increase the likelihood of nuclear exchanges, it would be the Middle East. Like it would be in the Middle East if the Saudis had nuclear weapons and the Iranians had nuclear weapons and the, and, the, and the Israelis had nuclear weapons. Saddam wanted nuclear weapons. They're all vying for this territory that has been an area where empires have come and gone and fought with each other over millennia, right? This is what's so scary about where we are today as a society and the progress we've made technologically. That we've progressed technologically with our tools to, to heights that were, would have been unimaginable even 100 years ago, mm-hmm. and yet our politics have not improved, not one iota. Very little. Very yeah. little.
0: Yeah. Well, and then, and then the other thing to bring into this is a lot of the dynamics, socially, politically, religiously, a lot of the dynamics that served as somewhat of a safeguard or a barrier between or, or, or you know keeping – uh, escalation in nuclear war. You know, we haven't had a nuclear bomb go off in any other or in any tactical way since World War II. Um, a lot of those dynamics that kind of held people at bay and kept the sword and the scabbard, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. they're not present, right? There are a lot of those Middle Eastern leaders who don't care about collateral damage as it relates to their own civilians, right? Mm-hmm. It's that strong man attitude, come what will. And I, I wonder what role, do you think that that, Desire to have nuclear weapons is one of the top goals of of you know Iran in this in in terms of how they'll negotiate this. If or they could
1: realistically act. get, look, man, if you could realistically snap your fingers in the Middle East as a state and obtain nuclear weapons, certainly if you're a Saudi Arabia, that would that's got to be like one of the top things that you would wish for if a genie right. came down, right? right. <clears throat> But it's a whole process to obtain nuclear weapons. Right. So I think the, ch- the, the 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 challenge for the Iranians has been as they've pursued nuclear weapons over the years, it has come with massive costs. It's co- it's come. I mean, the, the Israelis and the Americans have worked relentlessly to 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 hold back their nuclear program. Whether it's assass- assassinating scientists, whether it was creating Stuxnet, which was the most advanced um, cyber weapon offensive of its time, maybe ever. So. Um, it's not straightforward to do it. It comes with enormous costs. and the class the best example of all was Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein's unwillingness to cease his effort to obtain WMDs, despite the fact that when we invaded Iraq, we couldn't find any, et cetera, you know and there are were, there were reasons for why he was posturing that he had them, but if he could have had them, he would have, he would have gotten them. And someone like Saddam who was as much of a sociopath as he was. right. He, he was perfectly capable of using them. I mean, he did use them against the Kurds multiple times. So this is the this is also the danger, and and I said I keep bringing up Saddam because I'm reading a book now about the Bush administration and the Iraq War, and the chapter that I'm reading right now is the history of Saddam Hussein. Actually, I'm on the chapter of George Bush because he's comparing biographies. But I just finished reading about Saddam, and you really you think about how many strong men there are in the world now, whether it's Saddam. And I'm not comparing Saddam to Erdogan or to um, to Xi Jinping or to Putin. Or MBS, but you're seeing there is this increasing rise of authoritarianism, and while that makes it a lot easier to negotiate because you have one person, and so for these regimes, for MBS, for Putin, for Xi Jinping, um, et cetera, these people are able to negotiate with each other very easily. They're able to to have direct talks and direct calls. It also makes it where, like, yes, the gains can be enormous, but the losses can be huge. Because you have one singular person and also you have a really, this is the other, this is the thing that's the worst about it. You have no succession strategy in a lot of these cases. (laughs) What happens if the guy at the top drops?
0: Chaos. Chaos. I mean, right. That's what we're seeing in, uh, I mean, that's what we've seen in Syria.
1: And that's what we saw by the way. And we saw that in Iraq. Yeah. We saw that in Iraq. Yeah. So, and these are not countries that have, uh, they don't rest the authority within the people. And so, when there's no leader, you have a civil war.
0: Okay. So, at the risk of sounding somewhat naive, and I can't help myself going down because I, I don't, I, know, I know this about you personally, and I know that you and I have this in common. Um, I think both of us are sober-minded enough to come right out the gates and say, "Look, I don't have an answer." Right? We, I, I think both of us are, are <laughs> self-aware enough to, and intellectually honest <laughs> enough to, to admit that. But if you were to look at this scenario, what is a path forward? Is there one? I mean, is this solvable? Is this just destined to erupt? In Because, I mean, the way it's moving to me, and I could be wrong, and perhaps people have said this many times over the last 50 years, but the way it's moving to me, I, I see this latest move as certainly a step change, right, in, in the way that this... Um, conflict has played out especially over the last 30 or 40 years we've talked about the increased complexity of this attack compared to last you know the the, the previous runs that that palestine has made or the palestinians have made against israel israel um th- this seems like a, certainly an escalation this seems like i said a step change um we i don't see any viable outcomes i don't think you know if you look at the israelis they have to respond Right I mean, they, of course, they
1: have, they have to respond. To respond. The question to... is what what how 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 measured can their response be so that they can achieve the the sort of the game theoretic objective of responding and punishing and showing that this kind of attack is unacceptable and there will be repercussions while not overreacting and putting themselves in a worse situation than they were otherwise, because the media environment today is also very different. the The Israelis have always had a difficult time managing their their coverage in in Europe. But they've had very great relationships with u s media outlets over the years, and now with social media, they're really losing control
0: yeah yeah and 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 the way they're perceived on the international stage is a pretty big deal, especially in that part of the world and like you said, i just I, the analogy of a hornet's nest i mean what do you, i you know you don't want to – i mean it would seem like it would turn into an absolute mess in a meat grinder if you put a lot of boots on the ground if you're if you're the i d f
1: well that's what they're that's doing. what they're looking to do, right? I mean, they're right. not—they haven't rolled in today because of the weather, but they're basically saying they could roll in any day now.
0: And is that? And here's the question: Here's—I was thinking about this while preparing for the interview. Is that better than just strictly going? I it, strictly going aerosol, you know, or or, or and bombs? You said
1: it earlier. It's a blood feud.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so do you see any? What is the role that the United States plays going forward? Right? How, how do we? Well, what is the path forward here? When I look at this situation, I just don't see any path forward, man. And and I, I've got to believe that there is, right? There's an out somewhere. What is it? Where is it? Where do you think we're headed? And and is this, let's pretend, first of all, that there are some solutions and things that can be done. Are we, in my mind, I feel like looking for solutions that will allow both to coexist if that's possible, right?
1: So This goes back to something we talked about earlier, which was there's no good theoretical solution. I think also that's what the Abraham Accords was about. The United States had already made a decision to pivot out of the Middle East. It saw its situation there understandably as hopeless to really make a change. It's kind of like quicksand. The more you fight, the more you get sucked in. And they were trying to find a way to aid a diplomatic solution that would allow allow for the emergence of a new network of power in the middle east that would offset the iranians which was i think a primary concern of the united states and that would provide for regional stability so that this important part of the world would not you know blow up i think it's just it's very hard also because the iranians there is there's this is another thing they're embedded in a lot of these countries with with terrorist organizations and it makes it very difficult. It just make it makes it very difficult because of also the the, the Chinese who again they are very much invested in the economic situation with Iran with Iran because of Iranian oil. The Chinese are also not really interested in playing a really big role in the region diplomatically. So again, this kind of goes back to the other point which is that as we move from 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 a world of unipolarity to multipolarity it isn't just that you end up having revisionist powers try to test borders but you also have great powers who are less effective at actually helping guide solutions so it becomes increasingly anarchic so the short answer is i don't me and i'm not an expert so maybe somebody else can come up with a better solution i don't see a solution i feel like the best all these Actors can hope to do is try and douse fires and hope that over time we can kind of meander towards a new equilibrium, not unlike the the analogy in the sort of um, the the slow deleveraging from a balance sheet recession right? this sort of like, there's no good... there's Well, that's actually not a good example because there is a different... There, in that case, there are clearly different options. There's a really bad political option, which is an economic, a massive recession, right? And a series of bankruptcies, a Great Depression, which can, can be very V-shaped and abrupt versus this L-shaped recovery. Um, but I feel like that's sort of... It's more of the L-shaped solution. It's sort of like we just kind of try to keep things together. We don't let things get escalate completely out of control, you know, I think that's that's really the best that they can do, and the United States certainly would prefer that, absent some kind of historic deal, which is really difficult to get because that's what we're trying to do, yeah. and the Iran the Iranians in all likelihood sabotaged it.
0: Yeah, and that's and that's the other hard part about this is there are so many there are so many players uh, and factors involved in this whole thing that don't benefit from peace, right? Where, you know, overall, I think the citizenry from both, you know, I think it's undeniable to say that the citizens in in, in both areas, territories, countries, however you want to put it, they would benefit drastically. But I think we all know, you know, see it here in the United States, right? Political solutions are often not what's best for the citizens of that individual country. And um, I, I'm I'm with you. I Because of that dynamic, my great fear, and, and in closing, I, I want to throw this at you. Yeah. No. Um, because I hope it's very much not this, and I'm not saying it's, it's at all my base case. My great fear is when I look at the world today, um, and I look at the issues that we face economically, uh, you know, so many different, we're, we're at so many different, it's such a unique point in, in history, at least as far as I've been alive. Um, my fear is is that this has the potential of being some type of Archduke Ferdinand moment, especially considering that you've got a kinetic war going on in Europe for the first time since World War II. Do do where where would you put that on the bell shaped curve of potential outcomes? And do you think it is dangerous of spiraling? Do you think this will stay kind of the the, the as horrific as it is, don't, I'm not undermining at all. But do you think it will stay this sort of regional conflict back and forth? Or do you agree that there is potential for this spinning out of control and becoming something much larger?
1: What I would say is that whether or not this particular situation spins out of control right now, I think that we continue to be on a a downward slope towards chaos. I felt that way since the invasion of Ukraine. I continue to feel that way. I only feel more that way because every time something like this happens, it's like more of the mirror shatters. Agreed. And the more cracks you get, the more it puts pressure on other areas. And we have to reach a bottom at some point. We've got to reach some place that we've hit bottom. And I don't think that we're there yet. The question is, can we sort of reach a bottom? And then again, I, to use this L-shaped recovery, because I, I guess I really like it now. Um, can, we, can we reach a place where we just kind of stay there? And there's just the world just becomes chaotic, where we kind of manage it. We manage it like an illness with a bunch of drugs. And we just kind of keep it going um, for a period of time with eventually a hope of sort of finding our way out of it um and i think as long as as long as the united states russia and china don't find themselves in a hot war that's the world that we're going to be in if if however we do see the chinese or the russian the russians escalate somehow or the russian or the chinese attempt to change the status quo in Asia in a forceful way because they think that they have a real opportunity to do that because the United States is stretched really thin, that could be a really perilous moment because we're so divided internally. And this was the subject of the newsletter that we published on Sunday. One of, one, one of, it's something I talk about a lot, but it's something that we talked about in the newsletter as well, which was titled... Uh, uh, I think I think I titled it looking for something about forming a new democratic consensus, forging a new democratic consensus. I think that we're in a place right now in American politics where everything is up for grabs. We're in a 80 to 100 year cycle in our politics where the old democratic consensus, the mixed market economy, the sort of compromise between the socialists, the socialist left and the sort of libertarian right that defined the American middle for 40 years, really up until the early stages of the Reagan administration, but it really accelerated in the 1990s with the end of the Cold War and the opening up of trade and the entry of China into the WTO. That consensus has broken. And so there needs to be a new social consensus, a new social democratic consensus in the United States, a new social contract. And there also needs to be a new new sort of status quo internationally because i do, i do believe it's it's very clear that the rules based international over international order is over yes there are lots of vestiges of the of the rule that exist but it's it's not there anymore it's not a credible system anymore so something new has to emerge and i think that america for its part will need to have those conversations together they're going to have to have a, a conversation that includes bo- both the politics internal domestic politics and the foreign policy together in one whole conversation because up until now, for the since really the, the, the Cold War, since, since George Kennan sent his famous telegram, foreign policy has been there's been a bipartisan consensus on foreign policy. You remember when, when Nixon was ousted from office after over Watergate? What did the press say? Don't worry. Kissinger's gonna stay on. Right. They said Kissinger was gonna stay on because they, they understood there was an understanding that like, don't worry, foreign policy will be fine and that's no longer the case anymore. All of these things are up for grabs on the Republican side ever since Donald Trump won in 2016. The Democrats haven't had their moment yet, but I think that's where we are and it's a very dangerous place because we're very divided. We haven't come together, makes us makes us weak. There's there's not a consensus on foreign policy, which means we don't know what we're going to do if the Chinese invade Taiwan as an example. And uh you see what happens. societies that are not internally coherent. That's what happened to Israel. Israeli society was very politically divided heading into those attacks, and it cost them. And it also makes it difficult now because besides the intelligence failure that's causing civilian leadership in in Israel to doubt intelligence, to not be 100% sure about what to do, there's also... Not a strong executive. Yes, there's a rally around the flag effect, but how long will that last before people start to really begin to return to the divisions in their politics? And I, I mentioned this on Twitter because it was actually a kind of an odd time to mention it because there was this rally uh, around the flag effect in in Israel. But I, my question, I really, you know, I have to, there's this working assumption, and I've been have had it as well that like in the face of some external threat, that we will come together. But in the age of social media, I'm not sure that's true because people are so tribal. They're so conspiratorial so that if 9-11 happened today, I question how the country would have reacted. I question if there wouldn't have been 20 or 30% of the country that would have said there weren't any planes. It was all holograms, especially now with AI and deep fakes. It's bullshit. It's not real. Yeah, And what happens then in this country, man? That's the thing that's so scary, dude. And that's where I think our society is uniquely vulnerable because you've got these authoritarian societies where it doesn't matter what the population thinks. I mean, it matters at the limit, but not in the case of a 9-11, right? People mm-hmm. are just like, that's that's cool, right? And whereas for us, there's so much leeway for public discontent. So again, I just think, man, like, that's why that's why I've been... For years I've been just saying this. I've been been banging the drums on our need to come together and our need to solve political problems. It doesn't mean that we all just need to jump on board with whatever the government says. That's the exact opposite of what I'm saying, but I'm saying people need to be constructive. And in America today, there's a freaking sport around being cynical, just being a child, blaming, just constantly complaining because things aren't perfect. Every opportunity to, to attack the other side, I find it disgusting, man. It's really unreal. The Republicans and the Democrats have both did it. The Democrats did it when Trump got into office in 2016, 2017. I didn't vote for Trump. I didn't want him in office. But man, when he, got, when he became president, boy, was I not rooting for him to be successful. The Democrats did everything they could to delegitimize him. And every time something comes up, the Republicans find ways to attack Biden, and all of it just is so incoherent given where we are today. So I think that's our biggest risk, man, our, in, our internal divisions.
0: No, I, I I was laughing this weekend about scanning through Twitter and seeing somebody with a pretty substantial following um, quoting and, and screenshotting the latest from QAnon as if it was like real. Really? Yeah, and you're sitting there looking at these people going, guys, This has been proven to be a ruse and a joke over and over and over how, and it it just, it it scares me and it scares me because for the first time, it it reminds me the first time I heard you use the term financial nihilism, that it's, it is such a unique part of culture and society today where people are willingly waving the flag for something that has been proven completely false, right? And, and the fact that it's been disproven doesn't dissuade them at all.
1: Because they don't have a theory, that's what right. conspiracy theories are, right? What is a conspiracy theory? It's not actually a theory; it is a, a uh, it is a a pattern recognition engine that says, "I'm going to put together a story based on this connected this this series of connected dots." But I don't have an underlying theory. I don't know how JFK was killed, but what about what about why why what did why did that guy where they say there was a shot from the grassy knoll? Like yeah. there's no actual underlying theory. It doesn't mean that maybe maybe JFK was assassinated by the the CIA, but you don't actually have a theory. You don't know. No. You don't know you don't you don't know why how Jack Ruby was involved, if he was involved. You don't know if if there was anybody besides Lee Harvey Oswald. You don't know any of that stuff. And so like I think that's kind of where we're at today. And people with very large followings feel perfectly inclined to do that and to speculate on that kind of stuff. And
0: well, to make it even more complicated, right? You've got the people on the other side that dismiss anything summarily because it sounds like a conspiracy theory, and and you just got these this chasm miles wide in yeah, between. This the is a,
1: it's it's a great listen, Zach. This is a this is actually a really interesting conversation we'll probably not be able to get into, but you know I feel like I'm often someone that finds myself on the side of the people that not dismisses but i'm very very ruthless about attacking someone that put not attacking the person but attacking what they have to say and 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 sort of like show me tell me walk me through your hypothesis and after we get through that process like for example let's talk about jeffrey epstein so like i totally if you if i had to if you put a gun to me, I'd be like they probably killed the guy somebody they yeah. somebody probably got to the guy i i, I i'm if I, But it's possible that it's possible, it's entirely possible that it wasn't, that he killed himself, right? But like, if I had to go, but I'm still not sure, but that's an extreme case where there are reasons for me to feel that way, right? Because they put him in a different cell, another guy was a big cop, tried to kill him, all the cameras were shut down. It's possible the cameras were shut down because it was a shithole over at Rikers, you know? But like, that's an extreme case. There are lots of other cases where people just, you know, just talk about all sorts of stuff. You know, like, oh yeah, the Clintons are pedophiles. Well, how do you know that? How do you know that the Clintons are pedophiles? How do you know that, that Biden is in China's pocket? Well, by the way, he's not, because everything points to the fact that he's not in China's pocket. And the Biden administration has put forward much more substantial legislation and regulation around trying to contain China than the Trump administration did with with uh, with uh, what's it called uh, tariffs, which the yeah. Chinese have been able to work around through Vietnam or. Or Mexico. But like this is the thing. It's it's a it's a partisan eco chamber of stupidity where people feel smart by being cynical. They feel smart by being like, oh yeah, I know. And it's like it's more important to sound smart and sound like they know and just kind of like do this stuff than actually be smart, figure stuff out and and, and generate alpha, whether yeah. genera- generating it as an investor or as a citizen to actually be aware, right? And you and I have been banging our heads against the wall, the whole dollar, de-dollarization, dollar Gosh. hegemony. It's gonna just going to stop using dollars because the, the dollars were bankrupt. So they're just going to stop using it. No attempt to understand how the dollar has power, why people use dollars, thinking about all the different private actors in the world that need dollar balances, what the game theory behind the whole dollar network effects are. You know, like I had... Uh, anyway, and then there are a lot of actors too, man. Like, I don't want to say names, but there's someone that's well-known that has a theory that he puts forward a whole story about the network state and how we're all going to live in the cloud essentially. And it's kind of—I'm not really giving him a fair hearing here, how I say it. But like, you got people that are pushing this idea that somehow like the network effects of the blockchain ecosystem or of Bitcoin, which are like 15 years old based on like 10 minute trailing probabilistic consensus on a blockchain, are somehow going to replace 200 years of U.S. of history, Civil War, World War II, World War One, the Great Depression, and American Constitution and civil rights. You know there are a lot of people that are not good faith actors that are attacking the systems that we have in place today, are attacking our institutions, and that's those of us who know better should defend them. Understand that they're not working right, but America has been through much harder times. Man, we inherited a country from our grandparents who fought you and I in that age. My 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 grandfather, my grandparents are Greek. They fought in the World War II and the Greek Civil War. But, like, that's the generation in the United States that fought World War II, man. They put their lives on the line. Like, we have a responsibility, not just to our children, to the people that live today. We have a responsibility to the people who sacrificed for us to get here. And I feel like that's where, and, you know, talking about conversations, I had a conversation with Henry Olson. That was episode three thirty. I so so recommend it to your audience. And he was, we were, we were, you know, I, I had him on because I heard him talking about the Republican Party and the different strains of culture within the Republican Party. This new Republican Party. When he described the Republican, the new right, I felt like he was describing me. And nothing resonated with me more than responsibility. You know, we have a we have a responsibility, and people have been through much worse. So your cynicism isn't appreciated. Go away. Go have a pout in the corner. All the love for you. I don't know what you're dealing with in life. Maybe it's super tough, and I totally respect that. But you have no place here. Just like the people that are the decision to shoot down a jumbo jet that's gonna kill a million people, you have no place in the room. I get it. Maybe it's not your jam, but like you don't belong in the room. Other people belong in the room.
0: Hey, it's like the people the people on both sides of the aisle that sit there, you know, on one side of it it's let's go door to door and take everybody's guns on the other side of it. It's come on, bring it on. Let's try, let's get this on. And you want to look at them both. Okay, them go, hey, bring gosh.
1: it on. Yeah. yeah let's bring <laughs> Yeah.
0: yeah fun, fun conversation to have over drinks. Yeah. Okay. You, you, you're describing the Genesis of a modern civil war here in the United States. Let, can we just all be adults and recognize that nobody wins? Right. And and the horrors, I, it just, and, and that is one of the things that concerns me is because, that, for lack of a better term, and I'll use it again. Whatever that attitude is that has that that, that spawned financial nihilism, as you coined the term, it, it, it seeped into so many other things. Where these bring it on, man! But and you're going no, no. It's no, LARPing,
1: no, man. No. It's live action role play.
0: That that's a great way to put it. That is what it is, isn't it? Yeah. It's it's and I think that we as people getting to a point you were making earlier. I think it is incumbent on the more sober-minded of us, the ones that are actually trying to get it right, to make sure that we come into these scenarios and analyze them as they are, not as we want to see them.
1: Hey, brother, we need, we, need, we need new leadership that's yeah. up-to-date, and not just in government. Across society, there is a, a real vacuum when it comes to leaders, when it comes to integrity. Some of the most powerful CEOs... Um, some of the most vocal CEOs are like you know quasi sociopathic and like children rampaging. The the they're they're they're, I I watch I you know I I see young kids today, young boys who have role models. I think that this is what manhood is. It's Andrew Tate or it's uh, Russell Brand or you know it's like people are really confused about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a leader, what it means to be an adult, and my conclusion on all of this has been show, don't tell, and try and elevate people that I feel like are good faith, focused on solutions. I don't expect that anyone has the solution, but I do believe in the the effect of having lots of good faith people who are mission-driven, focused on the problem, working together, that can get us to solve it. And eventually- I imagine that if it gets bad enough, it'll push us over the edge. But there are some of us that have been focused on the problem, just like there were some of them, some some Americans who were focused on the problem in the 1930s before we ever got to Pearl Harbor. So, like you know, I just I think that's the only way forward, man. You just keep trying to find other like minded people, find people that are holding the fire, you know, like as opposed to people that are just sitting in the darkness who are either laughing hysterically in a nihilistic way at the at the sort of breakdown of society. Or who are really just kind of like doomers and they just yeah. can't find the motivation to fight to find the courage to walk through the fire, yeah, you know,
0: yeah. yeah, no, and I do it, and that's why you know I think that's why these kind of conversations are so uh needed today because do I have a yes, I've got a bias, like I said, my last name's Abraham, I've come from his long line of you know Lebanese Jews, you can't
1: get more Jewish than Abraham
0: that's right, yeah, it's kind of. Kind of right there at the start, right? Um, but at the same time, you know, recognizing that seeing it through that lens of bias doesn't get you any closer to the solution.
1: You know, actually, this not to not to open a whole another whole another front of conversation, but the the reality is that, like Israel and the Jews are a good are a good example. And again, there are limits to what you can achieve by force, by diplomacy. You know, they, they have a really intractable problem there. But they're a really good example of like what a people can do when they set their mind to something, you know. Like so, I think that people there's a lot of lessons there, and I always, as a Greek, as a as a Greek citizen who has family in Greece and who cares very much about the future of the country, I often talk about, and I'm not the only one. I'm not the only Greek person that does about the model of the Jews in Israel. And what they've been able to achieve, and this has direct relevance to Greeks because we came from the same, we came out of the same breakdown of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans ruled for four hundred years over that territory, so there's people can come together, but they need a they need a sense of identity. And for America right now, we really struggle with that. That's an area where we really, we really have we're having a difficult time, and we have to go through a process of realignment, reform, and rebirth culturally politically you know across the board to i think reach that place and it's very complicated because uh, also because of these new technologies and the way that people find community in siloed spaces you know
0: it's and it's somewhat disconcerting because in the past anyway those things that brought us together were not exactly pleasant experiences right um the things that sort of have realigned us and gotten us back on track and i think we're at a decidedly different place for completely different reasons than we've been in the past. But that is one of the, you know, I, and and maybe it shouldn't concern me. Maybe that's the the path forward. I've long thought that, you know, for instance, I've, I've looked culturally at us and been like, you know, I, I feel like, I feel like one of the things we need is a recession. Um, And I don't want to spin off into a finance based conversation, Mm. but you know, um, when, when things are too, Uh, you know, there's certainly been challenges over the last 15 to 20 years, but when things are too good for too long, I think people, it's, it's not, I'm not saying they've been too good for too long. I just think people get unrealistic about the negative outcomes or the negative potentials of having these massive cultural divides, right? Like they get callous to it. And like you pointed out, Mm. there are real costs to that division. And um, oftentimes we're not reminded of what those costs are until really bad things happen.
1: Maybe the solution is giving everybody everybody mushrooms and psilocybin and ayahuasca (laughs) and something like that. Like I'm not, I'm not joking. I'm serious. Maybe people need a massive mental reset, um, and maybe that would really actually be the solution. Like if you gave AI a shot at like fixing this, maybe their solution would be like people need to have. One or multiple trips, like massive psychedelic trips, to reset their sense of what's possible. Because we're well, really I'm, stuck in a really dangerous paradigm.
0: No, I know. Well, I mean, you, you could make the argument that people are acting like they've already been on trips. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah, what maybe it's one of those two negatives that makes a positive. Maybe. Well, I, hey, pal, pa, I really appreciate you coming on in short notice. I, I, I wanted to get something out on this topic to our audience to help better people better contextualize what's really going on, as opposed to hearing the food throwing and the food fight nature of all this. And as always, and I'm not saying this to to give you shameless plugs. Mm. I just, well, just, these are the, these are the conversations that you have on your podcast and it's really coming from an attempt to understand and learn rather than pushing a narrative. And there's just so, you know, you know, you know, I've spent tons of time talking about this too. There's just so few sources out there of people that are genuinely trying to get it right. And I think if more people listen to your show and the guests that you have on, um, yeah, I think that's a step toward seeing things in a more clear picture. So uh, they can find you. Give me the Twitter handle. I've got your Twitter handle right in front of me, but it's at Dimitri Kofinas, right?
1: At Kofinas, K-O-F at Kofinas. as in Frank, I-N-A-S. They can um, learn more about the podcast at hiddenforces.io, where they can also sign up to our newsletter. Uh, and I've been publishing a lot of thought pieces in the last several months on Sundays. And they can also get emails Alerting them to the podcast, and if they are interested, they can sign up to our premium feed or even our Genius community, where we have live Q and As and in person events, including dinners all over the world, to talk about these subjects. So,
0: and and I am a member of that Genius community. You are our, our community, and um no, and I strong, and I and I and and you can you can sign up and and get and get through the paywall, which I think is worth every penny. But there's also half of it, right? Half the content is free, right? It's outside the paywall.
1: Yeah, exactly. So the Hidden Forces episodes are two hours, roughly each. The first hour has always been and always will be free. If you want the second hour, which is basically a deep dive into some element of the first hour, I, traditionally what I try to do is I create, the first hour is, is a foundation building exercise and the second hour delves deeper into some particular thing. So our episode with Andy Constant and Mike Green on the bond market meltdown, the first part was all about building a foundation to understand really what are we talking about here? What happened? And then the second hour was like, well, what do you do as an investor? You know, if you want to take advantage of this move in yields, what do you do?
0: Yep. Yep. No, and it was, that was, that was a great one too. But yeah, I, I, I strongly recommend it, guys. And the hidden forces, they can find it on the Apple Podcast, anywhere, the same with no Your, same with our podcast, any podcast website or, or service. Or if you're
1: there, flying yeah. on United Airlines, Singapore Airlines, right. Cafe, Air Lingus, Fiji, Vietnam, anywhere, you, you can find us on a lot of international airlines, British Airways. So check your in-flight entertainment system for international flights.
0: And one other thing I want to say is the reason that he does the subscription model is he doesn't take any advertising dollars. So there's no marketing whatsoever. And again, that that is another thing that I think we all know is making the waters even more muddy in so many places. And it's certainly one of the things that enables you to, to stay on script and, and continue that, pursuit of a non-biased analysis of so many of these topics thanks so.
1: man i appreciate it i appreciate it you i look, bet, forward, you know, I look forward to having you on the show too this is we, you and i've talked about this you're going to come on the podcast and we're going to talk about markets and it's going to be great i look forward to it
0: i do too pal well thank you uh, thank you uh um sincerely again for doing this especially at short notice and uh hoping you guys got as much out of it as i did um, keep an eye out. We've got the show coming up. This is just a special episode we did. We've got the show coming out this Friday and another uh, interview as well. Not going to want to miss that. Until then, have a wonderful week, and we'll see you again soon. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com.